Hello and welcome to the Sea of Startups, where we dive into the stories behind the startups in Southeast Asia. I'm your host, Kevin Brocklin, Managing Partner of Indelible Ventures. Now, if you're a founder or funder looking to learn more about what drives the startups in Southeast Asia, this podcast is for you. We're about to sit down with founders to uncover the unique insights into the origins and motivations behind launching their startups. We'll uncover the stories behind the struggles, the ups, the downs, guided from the view of an entrepreneur. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's show. All right. I am very happy today. My guest is Joe Koo, the co-founder of iStore iSend. For those of you who don't know, iStore iSend is a holistic end-to-end e-fulfillment company providing warehousing as a service solutions. They are currently serving more than 1,000 businesses across six different countries as of this recording. Thank you very much for being here with me today, Joe. Hey, hi, Kevin. Thanks. It's a pleasure. Yeah, um, happy to, 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 to have this chance to share a bit more about what we do and our journey. Excellent. So what are, one of the things that I always start with that I'm always fascinated on is the origin story. So take me back. What is your founding story? How did you come up with the idea for iStore, iSend? Okay. I, I think this is a very interesting question because I've, I've been asked of this a lot. And actually, I saw iSense starts pretty interestingly for me because I started the company with a longtime friend, uh, my, my childhood friend, in fact, Tommy Yong. So we've been friends since 12 years old. So this is one of those rare stories where, you know, you have childhood friends going into business together. So um, we started iStore, iSend, or actually we started our entrepreneur journey in 2009. So me and Tommy, you know, we... We studied different things. I'm an econ's management major. He's, you know, a chemical engineer. Uh, technically, we have no business in logistics <laughs> based on our, what we've learned. But we've, we've kind of identified this opportunity back then. In 2009, when we were, everyone was just, you know, looking at different parts of the industry, we were, um, we were intrigued by e-commerce, you know, by the rise of Alibaba in China and, and Amazon in the States. You know, we thought e-commerce was going to come to Southeast Asia. And, and we believe that, you know, we should play a part in it. But then when you look at the whole e-commerce scene, right, there's so many things to play with. Which one would you be, you know, betting your entire life on technically back then? So me and Tommy say, hey, you know what? There's too many people in the marketplace, right? There's, it's, it's, it's going to be intensely capital intensive. So it's going to be hard, right? So let's not do the marketplace thing, right? Then the second one, it's the financial right, the financial infrastructure. Can we, you know, come and build a fintech company? Back then, we were thought that it was going to be difficult because of regulatory uh, requirements across Southeast Asia. So we didn't want to deal with that. So then it left with the last bit of the infrastructure, which is technically logistics, right? So we believe e-commerce is going to grow. And because e-commerce is grow, the infrastructure that supports e-commerce must also grow. And that's why we say, hey, you know, infrastructure logistics is very underappreciated and Generally, anyone who was in our age gap didn't want to be associated with logistics because it's like a taboo, right? Because we are Asian family and, and back in Southeast Asia, Asian family, you are either a lawyer or engineer or something, but never like a logistics guy. So you could imagine how difficult it is for us to convince our parents that send us you know, to all these prestigious schools overseas that you know, you know, after all their tuition, we've decided to kind of, you know, uh, you know, just 
invest our entire life into logistics. And there was still a, a pretty strong like uh, stigma on logistics. People thought it was super manual. And I think my mom thought it was like a bunch of shirtless guys, you know, uh, you know, moving stuff on the docks. There was that the imagery that people associated with logistics back then. Obviously, it's all untrue. So uh, 2009, we started to look at logistics. We, we thought the, the fulfillment by, by Amazon was a fantastic idea. Right. We wanted to kind of replicate that for Southeast Asia, but obviously at that time, we were super early in the market. Right, This is where uh, we, we tried to replicate a product that had no market yet. The market wasn't there yet. So what we did was we focused a lot on the last mile delivery. So it was like kind of you know point-to-point delivery, and we hired a bunch of uh, uh, employees, and then we, we had trucks, we had you know, motorcycles to deliver stuff uh, across uh, for our clients. And it's not until 2015, right, that we really kind of went back into our original idea. Because in, in 2013, me and Tommy had this epiphany moment that, you know, we had this very frank, honest, man-to-man conversation. It's like, hey, do you, is this what we, this, this what we set out to do? They said, no, this is not what we set out to do. We wanted to build a fulfillment business. But because of survival, because the market, we pivoted to last mile. And we, we, at that point, decided to say, hey, you know what? We're just going to drop 90% of our revenue. We're just going to invest everything we had into our original vision and just kind of you know, do this, this crazy gamble. And, and luckily, it turned out well, right? In 2013, we picked up a few big clients, uh, and that was also the turning point for Southeast Asia. We started to see major platforms start to uh, you know, create, be created. Uh, the one, like the group buying. The group buying was the first kind of the, the wave in Southeast Asia where e-commerce was really started, at least for retail products, right? And then we ride on that wave and then one warehouse became, you know, two warehouse, three warehouse, and now we have 29 warehouses across, you know, uh, the countries that we operate, right? So, um, and, and that's practically how we started. I, I find it really interesting that you that you started off with the, I guess, the ISEN portion of the name, and then you migrated over back over into the original idea, which was the which was the, I guess, the 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 combination of, but more so on the iStore. I'm curious, you you said that you dropped 90% of your revenue in order to shift back the focus. How did you go about deciding that? And as an organization, I have to imagine that you had to get multiple people on board with that process as well and maybe even circling back to the family aspect that you said that you that you started with i'd have to imagine that your own parents thought you were a bit crazy uh, by shifting away from your core revenue as well yeah that was actually that was one one of the most one of the very important moment in our history honestly me and tommy um we've the first thing we identified was how could we scale this business because we were getting to a certain size that we had to decide like, to scale this business up, which is the last mile bit of the business. And then when we, we looked at it and we started to think about raising money or putting money, right, more of our money into that business, we had a lot of questions ourselves that we couldn't answer, right? You know, is this, and, and the most important one was really, is this what we want to do? And, and turns out that question and the answer is no. Right. And, and, and rightfully for, for, for all the reasons that we don't want to do it because, you know, we, we didn't set it out. It was not our vision in the first place. Right. That really was the one that, you know, that was the first, that was the, the most important one. Right. Because if you're going to spend a big portion 
passion of your life, investing in something and, and, and putting 120% in it, you've got to be doing something you love or you want to do, right? If you're doing it just to survive, there is no way, even if we put all resources that we, I think success will be far and wide apart, right? That's why, you know, that was the belief. And when we did that, obviously it was, it was a big gamble because 90%, we were, we were surviving. And I use the word surviving because it was really difficult. Margin was thin, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and to make that decision, we had to have a buffer, right? We can't just switch immediately and then what are we going to pay ourselves? Or how are we going to pay our employees? Do we have to fire everyone? So we set out then to raise an angel round and say, hey, this is where we need capital, right? Let's bring in an external capital, uh, uh, friends or angel, uh, bring in a small amount to the company so that we can do this pivot without, I guess, you know, uh, completely shutting down the entire thing, right? So that's when we did that. Once we raised that uh, small angel round, uh, we, we started to pivot the entire business. Um, we pivot from not only just uh, our clients, right? We, we told them we're not doing this business anymore. We also moved our employees that were drivers uh, or, or you know, people who ride motorcycles into personnels in the warehouse. And, and thankfully, those, uh, in, those skills are not hard to get by. So then we, we slowly train them. And then some of them, I'm proud to say that some of them are still with the company after so many years. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I imagine that 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 must have been an incredibly difficult leap. But it's nice to hear that you were able to transition the employees, so that you didn't have a big turnover. You basically were able to shift uh, where they were being utilized, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, we try our best, lah. But obviously, there were some uh, that that didn't want to be in the warehousing business, or they felt that you know they wanted to pursue something else, and then those we had to let go. But it's it's it was uh, minimized lah, through through that. On on the warehouse side, so there's there's been a big boom overall across the globe in regards to the penetration of technology across warehouse operations. Tell me a little bit about as you started shifting your focus towards the warehouse operations, how did you focus your efforts towards incorporating technology in order to get the efficiency, in order to be able to scale it, to kind of start clawing back against that 90% of revenue that you that you gave away? So, yeah, so we've always been technology focused, right? Even when we were doing last mile, we, we were trying to incorporate as much technology as we can get our hands on. Given limited uh, funds, we, we were, you know, outsourcing some of our uh, programming work, building our website, tracking, et cetera, right? Whatever that we can get our hands on. So, but technology has always been one of the things that we really believed in, that it was going to be the something that will differentiate our business and the way we do business. Because if you look at logistics, right, uh, back then and even uh, some parts of it right now, it's actually quite uh, low tech, right? I think, like I mentioned, you know, uh, the, the imagery, the, <laughs> the, the imagery of, you know, low tech, manual, you know, hard labor. That was, uh, that is what people still think about logistics, right? So mm -hmm. we wanted to change that and say, hey, um, and the one that gave us inspiration, I think, uh, started from Amazon, right? Amazon's warehouse was huge. It was, you know, starting to be optimized. 
uh, and, and we wanted to say, hey, this is this is the future of warehousing. How can we play a part? And that's where we started. And that's what we raised our angel round for, right? It's to uh, build our own tech team, build our own engineering team, start building the product that will eventually be what we are using today called Odin, right? Uh, an online delivery and inventory network that we've built for ourselves since since then. So, um, you know, that's, that's the part of it, right? And we felt that, uh, and now I think definitely after so many years in the business, I definitely feel that logistics, it can be kind of broken down into two simple elements, right? It's actually human labor, right? Or the component of human and also the space, right? These are the two main ingredients of logistics. But if you kind of, you know, how you think about applying technology to optimize, to make it more efficient on these two parts, that is modern logistics, right? How do we apply technology to get the most out of the human and the space that you are given? Uh, that might, uh, would be what we are focusing on. Okay. Okay. And you you mentioned that you have 29 warehouses across the countries that you operate. I'm curious as well, because le- leading off of the example of Amazon, one of the trends that they've had is that they've shifted from just having single source, uh, very large warehouses to having kind of a hub and spoke model where they can end up having smaller outlets, leveraging technology to understand what should be housed in which ones so that they can end up decreasing the amount of delivery time by having products closer. Is that some of the logic that you've incorporated by having 29 different warehouses across, uh, what is it, six countries? Yeah, actually, <laughs> good question. But actually, you know, uh, there is many, many different factors, but I'll start with the first one, right? Why do we have 29 warehouses today? Uh, it's because of a business model, right? Out of that 29 warehouse that runs on our system, 11 of them, we operate ourselves. And out of that, 18 of them are actually licensed out either as a software or a commercial agreement. And which is where I think the one-liner I saw, I said what we're focusing on, warehousing as a service, right? So what is it, warehousing as a service? We've been, we've, we've been known as the pioneer and the leader in fulfillment, running our own warehouse, making a profitable business out of the fulfillment business. But then when we was hit by the COVID you know, uh, limitation, even we wanted to grow, there was actually a limitation on how we could grow because the acquiring more space was getting difficult given the restriction, the lockdown, et cetera, right? And then we started to think about how can we then expand our footprint the, the easiest way? And that's when we started to think, hey, why not? What's the difference between a store, SM warehouse and a typical traditional warehouse? The technology, the know-how, the clients, right? So why don't we bring this into any warehouses? And that's when warehousing as a service, as a platform, start to become something real. And then we we, we, uh, we POC the POC in 2021 with one of the warehouse partners in Singapore. And then now, you know, we, we started to have a lot more partners in this, right? So basically, uh, a lot of these traditional warehouses we are working on with, right? putting our technology, putting our clients, you know, into it, right? So that they can also operate and, and you know, start generating fulfillment business out of their assets. So that's, that's uh, business model is one of them. The second thing is obviously also about specialization, right? So mm-hmm. we've run, uh, we now run one of the largest independent uh, e-commerce warehouse in Malaysia, 200,000 square feet uh, near the seaport, 
Right, so it's a general warehouse, right? So why do we have a general warehouse and it's not a specialized, let's say a fashion warehouse or, or, or uh, an electronics warehouse? It's because we didn't have the volume back then, right? You need to have volume before you start to become specialized, right? So then we started, once we had volume, then we can start seeing, hey, let's build more specialized warehouse. Maybe we can have all the fashion clients in one warehouse. When we, we can have this, a segment of these clients in this warehouse. Once we have specialization and mass, that's when you know further efficiency starts to kick in, right? Then you can have automation that makes sense. Imagine you try to automate a general warehouse that there is chairs and there's also clothes. You know, mm-hmm. automation won't run really, really efficiently, right? But if you're having a, a you know a big facility that was just focused on fashion, ah, then you start having that you know uh, that uh, math to make op- uh, automation work, right? So then. That's the second one. Then the third one, last one, was also um, because we have actually six different warehouses in Indonesia, and this is spread across all the islands, right? The big islands. Why do we have this? It's because to move it nearer to our customers. Because maybe you don't, uh, maybe in Malaysia you don't feel the pinch like if you're buying from, let's say, the north state to the south state because we're still connected by land. That's mm-hmm. great. So then that's one rate. But in Indonesia, it actually does take a lot of time and cost to ship something from, let's say, Jakarta to another island, right? So how do we reduce that the time to deliver as well as the cost to deliver uh, is to move the stocks nearer to the customer. So this, then we need to have a bit more prediction into moving and replenishing stocks into certain warehouses. We have to do some prediction and say, hey, you know what? There's going to be like, you know, a thousand units of this that's going to be sold in island A. So let's put it there. So that is also one of the reasons. So that's how we end up with so many warehouses across Southeast Asia. Okay. Okay. Can I delve a little bit into the features that that would be included in warehousing as a service? Because what what I'm kind of envisioning is that there's a few different, several different aspects in the operations of a warehouse from understanding the quantities of inventory to have on, where to put, where to store them, what spot on the shelf within what spot of the warehouse. And then you have the entire process of picking, packing, getting ready to ship, valid Validating the the Q the QC process to make sure you're shipping the right items. How have you integrated into all of those lines? And is there any area that's next on the horizon? I guess as well. Okay. Um, yeah. So when we approach how we're going to optimize the way we've done uh, fulfillment is because I think it's very unique because me and Tommy both had no prior experience in logistics, zero. So we started and I guess benefited from like a clean state. So we, we could imagine anything we want and we had no shackles, no predeposition of how things are supposed to be. So then we challenge every single process, right? But when we looked at it, actually a warehouse or a fulfillment house, it's actually like a factory, a factory that's, you know, uh, creates parcel, a parcel generating factory, if you will. Then we cut that factory process into seven or eight parts. And then we got like, you know, uh, technology involved in every part of that stage. And then uh, we get people to specialize in every part. And it's just like a, like a, uh, a factory, right? So everything just works in a single line and everything processes works like that. Um, and obviously, once you kind of dissect it into parts and modules, right, it's easier to manage, it's easier to optimize, you know, it's easier to monitor, it's, it's just a lot easier. So that really kind of, that was the first approach we did with the, how we designed the process, right? So then, of course, all these questions that you had about an accuracy, about, you know, uh, what is the most cost-effective movement in terms of route planning, in terms of inventory storing, where 
the ABC stock. When we say ABC stock means the A are the high moving ones, the C are the low moving ones. Where are they supposed to go in? And do you do that? Do, how do you minimize that? Because if you put the A stock uh, in front, nearer to the packing station, that, that route, it's, it's much more faster. And, and you'll be surprised. The savings could be up to 20, 30%, right? On just that one uh, optimization. And that that's just one thing. That's that's probably like a thousand different little details that we have to kind of thought of. And, and over the years, we've added more, right? You know, just, just a button less here, an action less there, you know, it, it all helps in, in optimizing that process and reducing error, creating more speed, you know? that That is what we've done, right? Optimizing the space, where do we put things? How do how many things do we put in X space? Uh, and then you know, optimizing the, the human labor, you know, what is the route they walk, you know, all these things are all in, in, embedded into the process. Technology is embedded in the entire process. It's very software driven. We've built our own OMS, WMS, TMS stack, right? So um, I, I don't know what to call it besides that, right? So it's it's like a it's like a whole system is built for ourselves, right? And, and it's built purposefully to serve the fulfillment business the way we see it. And it's worked beautifully to the point that we started commercializing it like two, three years ago when people say, hey, you know what? I want to have your system. I want mm-hmm. what you are using, right? So I think that is really a, a validation on, on, you know, how the product is successful for us. Right. So, yeah, I, I think moving forward, right, I've mentioned a bit uh, in our pr- previous conversation, once you have the software, right, which is like the brain of the warehouse, now can we make it even more automated, even more efficient? Can we equip our warehouse, uh, you know, uh, employees with more tools to make their work even simpler, right? Then hardware automation comes into play, right? Maybe two, three years, we started this journey maybe three, four years ago when we look at all the hardware automation in the market for warehousing, right? And then at that point, the cost was actually too high. The math didn't work out. Mm-hmm. Uh, our volume was too low, the cost was too high, ROI was in 10 years, mm-hmm. no, no one's going to invest in that, right? And then now with everything kind of, you know, uh, cost optimization has went down significantly, right? With with sales and people uh, using more, there's more players, right? And then, uh, you know, uh, our volume has also grown over the years. So the math is coming into a reality right now. So we've actually started looking at parts, bits and parts of automation that help, again, you know, just looking at certain processes because we've, Cut the processes. We can just choose certain processes and say, "Hey, let's let's automate this, right? Let's let's make this more efficient." I, I love the very methodical approach of breaking the the operations into individual segments and then focusing on those individual ones and further segmenting it and with the heavy focus on how can we incorporate software in order to optimize. You know, I, I want to switch because, you know, you, you purpose built all of the software for your own internal use case, and then you switched over to commercialize it. And I'm curious that when you switched over to commercialize it, did you have any struggles in those initial onboarding processes because you know when you've been using something for a long time is one thing but then in order to get somebody else to use it as if it's intuitive i'm curious there oh that's a that's a that's a very good question it brings back uh nightmares and horror (laughs) stories right so so you're right, right? When you're building something internally, right? The 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 UI UX is like one of the last thing you invest on. So if you come and look at our software today, even today, right? It, it's not the most beautiful software for sure, right? Because we've not spent you know so much time on the UI UX. But what we've done is we've spent a lot of time 
uh, on the front end for the customer. So when a customer comes in, any customer of ISO I send today that signs up with us immediately gets an access just like Facebook, right? You get your own account, get to see what's going on in the warehouse in real time. Right, you could you could tell that if this item is being picked, being packed, being staged, you know everything on real time in that dashboard. It has you know SLA, how much being done, how much is not being done, etc. So we want to make sure that we give transparency, and that UI UI uh, that that user experience is very important. That's what the customer see, right? So that's the first thing that we really invested on. But then when we start to commercialize, we also need to talk about the backend experience, right? Which is the the warehouse operators. How is their experience? Um, and that's when we started to, you know, set up our own team to really look into this one bit, which is the backend experience, the backend UI UX. And we've been and we are still optimizing that as we speak, right? We've built a bit more intuitive, making things more easier to understand. But the early years was difficult, right? Uh, our customers <laughs> were were loving the features, mm-hmm. but then you had to kind of had like a a, a weak training, and then there was question on how to do this and that. Right. But then after that, and and because of all these questions, and thankfully for all our customers that was very vocal on their opinion, they helped us refine the product even more from there. And that also benefited our processes, right? Because although it was an afterthought, right? But now we benefit from it because when we make the 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 interface beautiful and intuitive, the side benefit was actually even our warehouse operators onboarding was much quicker. So people could be able to kind of, you know, come in, just learn one day and be, you know, 50% proficient with certain modules ready. So that 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 really cuts down on the, the training part. And then it's it's all part of the journey, right? And then mm. now because of all this, you know, optimization, we can then now move on to the WAS platform, right? So without that, probably it's going to be difficult, but because we have gone through that, that, that entire history, trying to commercialize our, our, mm-hmm. our, our technology, that, that all kind of, you know, uh, I guess uh, by design, <laughs> by grand design somewhere, just kind of make things make things work. Yeah, yeah. Improving for 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 a new commercialization actually ends up having the related benefit of making it easier on your own internal uh, organization with core product. I'm curious when when talking about commercializing this technology for for other warehouses. You know, did you do you have more success with the warehouses that are much more manual? or the ones that are a little bit further along the adoption curve, where do you find the most success in regards to the value proposition to them? And I ask because I, I assume some of the, there are plenty of warehouses out there that are still kind of in, in the old manual style process, the imagery that you that you mentioned in the, in the beginning here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think we speak from operators ourselves. It was extremely mm. struggle. So we, we didn't set out to build 100% all our technology ourselves. But we had no choice to but to build it because back in the days there was no off the rack solution, right? And even uh, right now today as we speak, right, even the off the rack solution is actually quite cost prohibitive. If you are operating, let's say if you if you have an if, uh, have an ambition to start a fulfillment business, but then you know the first cost is technology, um, um, then it's going to be very difficult for you to make money, right? So then. Um, the the licensing fee, the maintenance fee, etc. You know, you can get a very entry level WMS from from a lot of providers, but then it would not get the job done because you need to get integrated with all your clients because your clients you don't control where your clients sell, right? So then, if your clients start selling on a a channel that you your current software don't provide, then that's mm-hmm. a less market for you to attack, right? 
So then that all becomes problem, right? And of course, if you try to get, you know, upgrade to the next tier, get some customized, you know, uh, integration, that all costs a lot of money. So we 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 saw that problem because we were the one facing that problem. And and that's why we started with West as well, right? So it's a revenue share model, right? We don't charge them an upfront, you know, a yearly license fee or, or a recurring maintenance fee. We, we do a, a revenue share, meaning you we only start getting our revenue if you are getting your revenue, right? So in that sense, it was kind of much easier for, uh, you know, a lot of people to start this business and partner to come on board with us because there's no like upfront fee right? that right. they had to recuperate later. So we took that technology uh, I guess the, the painful technology part away mm-hmm. from the consideration so that they just have to consider the, the other parts of the business, right? And they just have to make sure that part work and then we'll take care of the rest. And it's simplifying process for a lot of our partners. And we see the most traction, especially for partners that are have underutilized assets, right? Not mm-hmm. so much for people who have aspiration to start a warehouse because there is still cost associated with starting a, a warehousing mm-hmm. business. You have to rent a space, you have to put in KPEX on, on racks and stuff, right? So those are still uh, something that you have to invest, but we have the most success for people who've already invested in it and, and probably not scaled as well, right? Maybe they were... They, two, three years ago, they were aspiring to be fulfillment businesses. But then mm-hmm. after two years, they're still struggling because of whatever technology issues, right? And their warehouse is maybe 30%, 30% utilized. These partners are the best because they already understand the pain point. They understand the value that we bring to them. They, they see as what we see, right? So then uh, convincing them is ex- extremely much mm-hmm. more easier, right? And then um, it definitely benefits for having a partner that is also interested to grow the fulfillment business, right? Okay. Underutilized asset also comes from a division of, uh, you know, businesses that had, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of businesses in, in Southeast Asia that has like a logistics division, but then the logistics division is not really uh, optimized. It's just built for kind of for internal use and maybe for B2B businesses. And as business shift, right, from B2B to B2C, right, some of these B2B warehouses becomes mm-hmm. underutilized. And these are also some of our best partners, right? Because they now need to kind of cross over and start going into serving a different segment of the customers. Previously, without technology, they could only just kind of rent out the space as a, as a basic storage. And you mm-hmm. don't have a lot of revenue per square feet on a, a storage business, right? What are the value adds that you can add in? And that's when we help, right? With our technology, we and on top of the West model, we don't only just bring technology, we also bring the clients. Because I saw I said it's built a brand name itself. Mm. A lot of people trust our service, right? So in, in that sense, we also need to find quality partners to work with. But then once we have a quality clients and clients and quality partners, then they all kind of jive together, right? So that is also what's 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 happening. So if you have a brand that trusts you and then you sign on a new license agreement with another warehouse, you might actually be able to leverage that and bring that brand to a new warehouse location as well. So you're benefiting the brand, you're benefiting the new warehouse. Am I understanding that? That's correct. Okay. Okay. Now to, to set all this up, I'm curious whether or not you had to recruit a new sales force dedicated for this new, for, for, for monetizing these assets of, of, of selling the software, uh, selling the warehousing as a service model, or was it the same, same team? So we come to a structural organization, right? Mm. So over the years, our company has grown from a small company to a relatively bigger one. Right. And, and a, a more general function to more specialized functions, right? So one of the things that we realized early on was when we had like the BAU, 
the business as usual units trying to do new things it doesn't really jive well because you have you know a bunch uh you you you, you imagine you have an you have a uh, you know uh, you hire the general manager and you've given him a kpi that's benchmark on you know profitability for the, the main business right then then now you add on and say, hey, on top of that, you need to drive this new business unit that might or might not work, that has you know high rate of failure. You know you have to learn everything from scratch, et cetera, et cetera. Then it doesn't work well because you're now judging him prim primarily. His main responsibility, 90, 100, 90, 90 uh, even 100% is on the standard business process, right? So then you definitely, even if I was on his shoe, I would focus on the things that is that is the easiest the, the one that has processes the main product right so then that's why we decided to say hey you know what to for this for all these new ideas and new things to thrive before it gets folded into bau there must be an internal department that incubates it into you know success and that's where we created a department called new initiative and which is now led by my uh uh founder partner Tommy so uh, we identified that um, you know the founders um, I guess skill <laughs> right mm -hmm. or innate talent is to kind of you know uh, you know build new things right solve new problems right and and that's where the new initiative thrive right uh, okay. they, we throw all new ideas to that and right it has a budget and some fail most maybe you know uh, half of them fail and half of them will succeed right and but the ones that succeed just like the west would change the trajectory of the company yeah i mean that's that's any any kind of startup idea or otherwise is that there's always going to be an existing fail, failure rate but i love how you're actually institutionalizing the efforts towards constantly innovating and constantly trying to come up with something new yeah, it's the dream job. It's like a play playground, right? So, so, so in that sense, we also think about you know maybe when the company becomes so large that we are no longer the the CEO, uh, we will have something to fall back on, right? So, like the founders' <laughs> playground to start new things, solve new problems, you know, keep us innovated. And I, think I, I love that. Yeah, yeah. The the, the founders' playground. I'm I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to borrow that phrase from time to time. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I, I think a lot of founders start their business because they wanted to solve new problems. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm curious, you know, you've, you've grown the organization and, and you've, you've gotten quite a, quite a decent amount of headcount underneath. How has the process of hiring, onboarding, training, how has that evolved over time? Wow. Uh, it's changed so much. Right. And, 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 from the day we started as a small company, a startup, uh, until now, uh, so like just to give you an, an uh, um, a snapshot, we didn't even have HR back then, right? So there was just me and Tommy. So you go through this stage where you're just kind of like in the in the Southeast Asia version of one leg kick. We call it one leg kick or multi hat, right? Multi hat taken to extreme, where the founders just do like three four things. They are the CFO, the COO, everything, right? So you go through this first journey because you don't have a lot of money. You've not raised a lot of money. You have to be cost conscious. There is not the function is not big enough for like even a full headcount, right? It's all like you know spend two hours in HR, one hour in this and that. So you have to have multi hat this uh, function as a founder. And as the company grew, certain functions become more and more heavy. Right. Let's say accounting. Right. Accounting maybe it used to be an, an hour a week where we just kind of key in every expenses and become an hour a day. It becomes a day to day job. Right. So once that becomes 
big enough, right? Then we started to specialize and hire headcounts for that, right? Starts with, you know, an in-house accountant. And when you have in-house accountant, you have, you know, two, three other people. You have people in charge of AR, then you have in charge of credit, you know, even under the function, there are sub-functions that grew, become bigger and bigger, right? And they in, in, in themselves will become a headcount itself. Then you need someone to manage the entire, all these functions, right? These sub-functions. Then you have head of finance. Then after that, you know, you have multiple countries. Then you need to have a, a regional head of, of finance, etc. So it kind of grows with the company, right? Hmm. As the, the job increases and, and the function becomes more important, you start to hire specialized headcount from there. And then obviously the founders then let go, right? And then do the things that they are better in, right? So today we've, we've come into a stage where we are getting uh, more and more specialized, right? Um, and I, I think this trend might continue for, for a while. Um, and I, I say this to a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs and, and people who start their business, right? They've gone through this journey and I heard this many, many times uh, as well with our with discussion with other uh, founders is that every time, the, every time a company goes through a different stage, it is a different company. It's no longer the company that you knew before, right? So every time your company grows from let's say 10% to 50%, it's a whole different company, right? Then everything needs to change. The way you look at it, the way you manage it, the people that is suitable for it, et cetera. So along the way, um, we've had to you know, find people who are more specialized in certain skills, right? And, and then people who are not, uh, as specialized might have to take a step down to do more general uh, other activities, right? So then this is how um, the, the, the business grow. And I think to embrace this early is, is it's a much better thing than uh, no people who didn't know about it. Because in the notion, I, I, and I, I am cognizant that some of the people who are listening to this podcast might be Southeast Asia founders, uh, we have this cultural thing where we kind of hold on to you know um, the the founding members, and you hope that the founding members can you know go all the way until the end for your company, right? And it's it's definitely a nice notion to have, but statistically saying, uh, maybe three out of hundred of your founding members will be still with you. Uh, when you are at a certain stage of your company, right? And yeah, at, yeah. at some point, a, a organization is going to outgrow in complexity than than the capacity of the founders, and it's it's okay for that. I mean, there's always the founders' playground. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a fallback on, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's why, right? That's why I think embracing that philosophy early on, it's it's good for the employee as well as the founder, right? Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. Stay, staying on the theme of, of, of growth, I'm curious of how you define success for the organization and how this has evolved over time. Oh, okay. Wow. Uh, <laughs> broad, pretty broad question. Yeah, um, but... yeah I, think, I think success came in, in, in many, many different stages. I think success came uh, when there's validation, right? validation from your customers for sure. Right. Once your once your customer grows, right, uh, with you, I think that's pretty pretty good. It's a it's a good sign that doing something well, right? If the customers that with you are sticking with you for the past eight years and they have also grown with you, I think it tells a lot about what you've done, right? And that validation still stick with us today. We have customers going all all the way back to like you know uh, eight years ago. One of them would be Secret Lab. Right, the, the gaming chair company, right? Mm-hmm. So, so wow, uh, their journey has been 
and fantastic and we've been very happy to be part of that journey right uh, that validation is is great um, helping our customers go through tough time and digital transformation in their journey has also been a very uh, rewarding right so during the covid situation we had this one client uh, that sold books offline, right? So 95% of their business was kind of like on event space. And because of COVID, obviously that was very restricted and very limited. And it was kind of like the moment for the company to switch to digital channels. And back then only 5% of their business were, was online. And then they obviously as any entrepreneurs and I hats off to them, they immediately kind of pivot the entire business to focus on the online channels. But obviously they didn't have the, the they didn't know what they were getting into because the operations of operating an online business, right, was quickly overwhelming them. Right. And they at one point when we went in and tried to help them, they had like two weeks of backlog. Meaning you bought something and then it was like, you know, haven't been packed for two weeks, right? So, so a lot of processes were, were, were very manual and they were trying the best they can, but business scaled so fast and, and the existing processes no longer work. So uh, we were given a very tough deadline within two months to kind of transform the entire 200,000 square feet warehouse into a digital operation, right? And then we pulled through, right? I think during COVID, there was this spirit of camaraderie. Right, we'll, we'll just like, you know, guys, let's let's just give our best to help each other because we don't know if the world's gonna exist tomorrow, right? <laughs> so so that's when we really kind of put, and, and the whole team and the whole company really band together and, and we delivered, right? And so happy that during that year, 2020, at the height of COVID, we were able to record a million ringgit worth of sales for them in one day, right? Through the online channel. And that was that was um, one of the heights of, of, uh, of that. Uh, that that success and when we saw that and that company now thrives not only just offline and online we feel validated and we feel success right so the customer's success story are some of the ones that really give us you know a, a validation that we're doing something right I love that I love I love I love the customer success stories and being able to see the impact that you're having on other organizations I'm, I'm curious kind of delving on that onto that same but with a little bit of specificity on on key metrics obviously as an organization grows it becomes more complex it's hard to boil things down to a single or a set but I am curious of whether or not you and your founding partner and your senior management team is there a single key metric or a set of metrics that you use in order in order to have uh, be a guide on whether or not you're dr driving those exact same sort of results. Yeah, so this is this is something that we've learned through 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 failures as well, right? So uh, early days we didn't know how to manage a big growing company, and you try to focus on like you know ten thousand different numbers, and it's not going to help you because when you're focusing on <laughs> ten thousand different numbers, none of them will work, right? So you have to kind of distill your entire business into a few set of easily understandable aggregate numbers, right? That gives you an idea where the direction of the company. And if everyone's speaking on a different number, then it's also very hard to manage, right? Because then this guy is going to be talking about A, they're going to be talking about B, and then, you know, you'll never get into a further understanding. So in 2018 and 19, we spent a lot of time structuring and deciding what numbers that we want to look at from every single division of our business, right? And, and from there, what are the metrics and what are the numbers and what is the target? 
And from there onwards, I think management of the company becomes much more easier, right? When we distill like maybe four or five different things that we have to look at at every division, right? And then those are the things that we focus on. So for example, right? So our business is a warehousing business. So hence our business only grows as much as how much square feet we have. Right, so uh, square feet utilization is actually one thing that we look at. And how do you look at square feet utilization? You can look at it many different ways. The way we choose to look at it was revenue per square feet, right? So how much revenue per square feet do we generate this month, right? And this would tell a lot of story, right? If it's low, mm-hmm. it's either underutilized or the price is wrong, etc., etc. right? So this is something that we look at, right? And driving that revenue per square feet every month upwards and upwards, it becomes like something easy to chase, Right. And then and there's other things like labor, labor percentage over revenue. Right. So this one is also about how much of a, how much labor intensive the job is. Mm-hmm. How, how are we making it less and less difficult for our warehouse operators? Right. If it's like, like, you know, an 80 percent, that means, you know, it's really not that that efficient. Right. And it's like, you know, there is a target. So now we, we've brought that down from like about high 60s right, down to about 40s, and we're now aiming even lower, right, so that's, that's how we kind of look at it, so obviously, these are all internal metrics, mm-hmm. and, and by no means, I'm asking all the other companies to look at it the same way, because I think every company will have different numbers to look at, you just have to decide, and make sure that the whole management teams are look at talking at it the same language, and obviously, that metrics can be fine-tuned and changed uh, over the years, but then that's uh, a different discussion with the management team. Yeah, it's, it's really tr- tied into strategic intent. So what's, what's the appropriate metric for you to look at may not always be the same one for somebody else. I, I, th- I think that's really great advice. Let me wrap up here with a couple of closing questions. So in running your business, is there a tech tool that you cannot live without? So one of the things that we talk about is our love of technology, right? I think we are one of the first, first company that went cloud with, uh, with, with our WMS and, and our whole tech stack, right? So um, we've embraced the cloud so much that the entire company is based on cloud tools. So if you ask me if I were to, today you take away uh, all the cloud tools I have today, I, I think I'll be pretty crippled, right? So I've been, my life has so now uh, revolve around the Google Calendar, right? The Google Contacts, <laughs> the Google Chat. So like everything is on the cloud, right? There's yeah. no, I no longer work on like spreadsheet Excel. We work on GDocs, right? Mm. Everything is collaborative. Everything's on the cloud and makes things easier, right? So even if I lose my laptop today, I can just buy a new one and immediately start work and that i think has really made life easy for us yeah and, the full suite of google workplace is, ju- is just phenomenal for collaboration especially if you're in multiple countries like yourself yeah yeah for sure right i, I yeah i cannot stress the importance of google calendar right so <laughs> <laughs> so founders like i have like a thousand things to do right but if you synchronize your calendars and what we've done with calendars we've made it even uh we've made use of it a lot everyone actually has access to everyone's calendar, right? So then if you wanted to speak with me, you just have to look at my calendar and see there's a slot and just book it, right? Okay. And, and that's how it makes things so much easier. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, one more, one one last question. For other startup founders that are out there that are just getting started, what is the biggest piece of advice that you would offer them? <laughs> biggest piece of so so many failures to, uh-huh. to pass on wisdom right but the one that i think uh is 
is something very important is the passion, right? You need to find what you're really interested in. We kind of wasted the big part of our journey, me and Tommy at the start, um, by pivoting to survive, right? Technically, mm. you do have to do that. But then, obviously, we could have realized that much earlier on, early on. But it's easy to lose track of what your North Star is when you're in survival mode. And a lot of startups are always in that mode, right? They're doing certain things just to make sure that they can survive. But then ultimately, they have to look themselves in the mirror, right? And say, hey, is this something that I set out to do? Can I envision myself doing this for the next 10, 20 years? If the answer is yes, great. But if it's no, I think it's time to self-reflect and, and you know, uh, cost correct as fast as possible. Yeah, that's that's fantastic advice. You you have to have the passion in what you do, Joe. This has been a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you taking the time to be here with us. Hey, thank you, thank you, thank you, Kevin. Thank you, thank you for having us. All right, that wraps it up for another fantastic episode of the Sea of Startups. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Go on to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It's the best way for us to get discovered and to have these startup stories reach a broader audience. If you have any suggestions or would like to get in touch, you can email me at kevin at indelible.vc. As always, I'm your host, Kevin Brockland from Indelible Ventures, and this is the Sea of Startups.